0: As I said, that psalm is applied by Peter in Acts 1 to Christ, who fulfills this pattern of God's righteous servant being falsely accused by those to whom he's shown love, yet entrusts himself to God. As we see at the end of that psalm, is vindicated. That pattern actually goes all the way back to Job. and We see that same sort of pattern in Joseph as well. We see it in many of the prophets, as Christ said in Matthew 5, Uh, But this morning, we read of it from Job 22, where Job's friend Eliphaz, to whom Job has shown faithful love, falsely accuses God's servant. Job chapter 22, we'll read beginning at verse one. Then Eliphaz the Tamanite answered and said, "'Can a man be profitable to God, "'though he who is wise may be profitable to himself?' Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to Him that you make your ways blameless? Is it because of your fear of Him that He corrects you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity? Without end, for you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason, and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have not given the weary water to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. But the mighty man possessed the land, and the honorable man dwelt in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Therefore, snares. Are all around you and sudden fear troubles you? Or darkness so that you cannot see and an abundance of water covers you? Is not God in the sight of heaven? And see the highest stars, how lofty they are? And you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds cover him so that he cannot see, and he walks above the circle of heaven. Will you keep to the old way from which, for which wicked men have trod? Who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by a flood? They said to God, depart from us. What can the Almighty do to them? Yet he filled their houses with good things. But the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad, and the innocent laugh at them. Surely our adversaries are cut down, and the fire consumes their remnant. Now acquaint yourself with him and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive, please, instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents. Then you will lay your, your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will have your delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to Him. He will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will also declare a thing, and it will be established for you, so light will shine on your ways, where they cast you down, and you say, exaltation will come, then he will save the humble person, he will even deliver one who is not innocent. Yes, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands. Beloved, I wonder if you've ever had the experience of being subject to what some have called character assassination, or you've been falsely accused, perhaps you've had false motives ascribed to you, had your words twisted, and those, even those who were your friends, those you've shown faithful love, accuse you of things that could not be further from the truth. That is Job's experience in Job 22. Where Eliphaz, his friend, accuses him, especially in verses six through nine of what we just read of this laundry list of sins, which we know are not true because we have read the prologue where God says three times in Job 1.1 1, 1, and Job 1.8 and Job 2.3, three times that Job is blameless and upright, one who fears God And shuns evil. We've read Ezekiel 14, where the inspired prophet puts Job in the category of Noah and Daniel as one of the three most righteous men of the Old Testament, assuring us that Eliphaz's claims are false. Remember the point of the book of Job is that God's exalted and blameless servant will become the focal point of God's battle with the accuser whom he will triumph over through faithful suffering. That's what this whole book is about. And so as we read Job 22 in the context of of the redemptive historical drama of the whole book and of the whole Bible, we see that this chapter is part of a pattern It's part of a pattern that we see in Joseph and that we see in David and we see in the prophets and eventually in Christ of God's servant being falsely accused of evil yet remaining faithful through it for God's glory. That's what Job 22 is a shadow of, of one greater than Job who will be falsely accused and yet endure that false accusation for the salvation of sinners, for the glory of God and for the triumph of God's righteous cause over Satan. So I want you to look with me this morning. uh, First at the accuser's mockery of Job's state, then his slander of Job's character, his twisting of Job's words, and his promise, a false promise, of prosperity. Uh, First his mockery of Job's state. That is his, his state of humiliations we see in these opening verses where um, Eliphaz asks in verse 4, "Job, is it because of your righteousness? Is it is it because of your fear of God that he corrects you?" You can sort of hear the sarcasm in his voice. "Is it because of your fear of him that he enters into judgment with you?" You keep insisting That you're righteous. You keep insisting that you do fear God. Well, is that why you're you're covered in boils then? Is that why you're here laying in the ash heap with your children buried all around you because of your righteousness? Eliphaz is doing what Job said in Job 21.3, after I have spoken, keep mocking. Or Job 19.5, keep pleading my disgrace against me. He is mocking Job's state of humiliation and sarcastically saying, Job, if you're so righteous, then is that why your life looks the way that it does right now? Is that why God isn't answering your prayers? Is that why you've become a laughingstock, a public disgrace even to the drunkards in the field, the little children of the poor? That even for them, you've become an object of mockery. Is it because of your righteousness that all that's true? We can sense this is a rhetorical question. The answer for Eliphaz is quite clear. He's he's not really looking to to engage in discussion with Job. He's not looking to gain any new information as he asks this question, but he's mocking Job. He's like the mockers in Matthew 27 who point at the suffering Christ on the cross and pleading his disgrace against him, say, if you are the son of God, then come down from that cross. If you are truly the king of Israel, then come down from that cross and we'll believe. Or even as the psalmist prophesied in Psalm 22, they'll say he trusted in God, let God deliver him. They mock the suffering servant because they suppose that it is not possible for God to somehow be glorified in the suffering of his blameless servant. That's what Eliphaz insinuates in in verse 2. He says, can you really profit God in any way? Verse 3, is it really any pleasure to God if you are righteous? Or is it gain to him? that you make your way blameless. Eliphaz is doubting that there is any way in which God could somehow be glorified, in which God could somehow find pleasure in Job's righteous suffering. That that righteous suffering in God's great plan of redemption could in any way be gained. What he's doing is he's contesting Job's point from chapter 21 about the, the prosperity of the wicked and therefore the possibility of the suffering of the righteous. And he's saying, no, Job, it is laughable to think that you would actually suggest that God would discipline a righteous man. That would be no profit to him. That would be no pleasure to him. But of course, the mystery of the suffering of Job, the the meaning of this whole book is that God is glorified through Job's righteous suffering. Eliphaz is, is mocking Job in these first four verses, not understanding that God is glorifying himself through exactly what Eliphaz denies. A righteous and blameless man who fears God, and yet God has entered into judgment with. And this is the same thing that the scribes and the elders and the passers-by in Matthew 27 will misunderstand as they mock Christ because they had failed to understand the meaning of Job, that God glorifies himself through the faithful suffering of his servant and in fact does sometimes afflict his children with suffering through no fault of their own. And so the accuser's mockery is a misguided mockery. Next we see the accuser's slander of Job's character, where he, he takes the next logical step in verse five and following and concludes that since God does not afflict the righteous, that Job's wickedness must be great and his iniquity without end. You sense that that shocking language. Verse 5, where Eliphaz, though he has not seen Job's sin, he just knows it, and so he goes for the jugular. He overstates his case and overplays his hand because he has let his emotions get the best of him. Kind of like we sometimes do also, and we're upset, and so we use words like always and, and never, exaggerating our accusations and saying things that just aren't true. But Eliphaz and his friends have long since abandoned the truth, and so they go on in verses 6 to 9 to paint Job as a sinner of monstrous proportions, as perhaps the worst sinner in the world. They say, Job, you have abused your power by demanding the cloak of the poor as a pledge, even the poor from your own family that is to say they owe you money and so you've you've taken their cloak as a as a sort of pledge until they do you've even done that to your own family members and you haven't returned it but you've left them out in the cold naked you've disregarded their human dignity You've taken advantage even of your own loved ones. You have ignored the weary and the thirsty. You've done exactly the opposite of what Matthew 10 and Matthew 25 say you ought to do and give a cup of cold water to the thirsty, to the poor. You have not cared for them. You've withheld a a cup of water for them to drink. You've withheld bread from the hungry and have not cared for the poor. Here, Eliphaz takes Zophar's accusation that we saw a couple chapters ago about Job being tight-fisted with his wallet, believes him, and then runs with it to paint Job as a power-hungry man whose insatiable desire for wealth has caused him to send widows away empty and to crush the orphan. He's accused him of living in such a way that is the exact opposite of what James one twenty seven says pure and undefiled religion is. It's also the exact opposite of the reality that will be described in Job 29 and Job 31 where Job will be described in almost messianic language as as doing the very things that Eliphaz here denies, as delivering the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had no one to help him. It will say that Job has caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. He has put on righteousness and justice becoming eyes to the blind and feet to the lame, a father to the needy so that the poor of the earth would wait for him as we wait for spring rain to shower the earth as Job lived like a king among his people, Job twenty nine twenty five, who brings comfort to those who mourn. You see, the reality Is that Job has used his wealth to be a blessing to others. And Eliphaz knows this. Eliphaz has seen this. But the power of self deception is such that he so digs his heels in that no amount of reality, no amount of reason, no amount of evidence will convince him against what his system tells him is true. That if Job is suffering, he must be wicked. And therefore, his wealth testifies against him that whatever perception there might have been that he was generous is not true. But really, he's a monster. He says in verse 10, that's why snares are all around you. That's why sudden fear troubles you, Job. That's why your life is filled with such darkness that you cannot see, and the floodwaters of God's wrath cover you. And so God's servant, the the one who will be described in Job 29 almost messianically, the one who God so delights in in chapter 1 and and chapter 2, the one to whom he calls the accuser's attention back in chapter 1 because he so delights in this righteous man who will glorify him, glorify God, that is, through his faithfulness, even when his whole entire world falls apart. This one is accused of unthinkable sin by Eliphaz, who now, as the accuser, becomes the voice of Satan from chapter 1. Who Remember, as Satan is spoken of in those opening chapters, is literally referred to as the Satan, the accuser. And now Eliphaz, in seeking to defend the righteousness of God, actually becomes the accuser, and therefore becomes the voice of Satan. Sometimes can happen with us too and we think that our righteous cause so needs to be propagated that we end up doing the work of Satan, even accusing godly men of sin and error because they would dare challenge the wisdom of our grace-free philosophy of religion. That's what's happening in Eliphaz's false accusation. And and, and as this this unfolds, he foreshadows the Pharisees who will falsely accuse Jesus, calling him a glutton and a drunkard in Matthew 11 calling him a Sabbath breaker and a prince of demons in Matthew 12, who, who will set false witnesses before him in Matthew 26, accusing him of blasphemy and condemning him, as Eliphaz and his friends here do in a kangaroo court. God's righteous servant will be falsely accused, and Job here serves as a shadow of just that, of what will happen to our Lord Jesus Christ. Next, we see the accuser twisting Job's words. So we have in verses 12 and following, where Eliphaz rightly points to God's loftiness and omnipresence in verse 12. But then he accuses Job of having denied this by misquoting him from chapter 21. First, he caricatures Job's argument in verses 13 and 14. Where Job, you remember, he he said that the wicked do often prosper, and so the friend's system is not able to account for life as it really is. Um, Eliphaz paints Job as having said that God cannot see what's going on on earth. He paints Job as having said that God is so far removed and, and so distant that he cannot see through the thick clouds of darkness as he walks above the circle of heaven. He twists what Job has said in chapter 21, not truly listening to him as Job asked back in 21 verse 2, but twists Job's words to place him in the company of the wicked from Psalm 73 who say, how does God know? Who say, there is no knowledge with the Most High. The wicked have said that God doesn't truly see what happens on earth. We'll sing about that this afternoon from Psalm 94. But Eliphaz twists Job's argument and makes him say that. That's what he says in verse 15. Job, will you keep to the old paths that the wicked have trod? Who say to God, verse 17, depart from us. Remember, that's what Job has quoted the wicked is saying in Job 21:14 That the wicked say, we want nothing to do with you, God. Depart from us. We don't want to hear the knowledge of your ways. It's no profit to pray to us. Depart from us. But now Eliphaz basically aligns Job with that philosophy and places those words that Job was quoting of others on Job's lips. It's like he zeroes in on one line from Job's sermon, takes it out of context, and now uses it as evidence against him, though obviously that's not what Job has said. The accuser is twisting Job's words. He's, he's doing what the false witnesses of Mark 14 will do when they take Christ's words about the temple of his body being destroyed and then rebuilt in three days and they twist it to apply Jesus' words to the temple so that he'll be condemned. God's servant in Job 22 in the way that his words are being twisted and, and taken out of context to be used against him foreshadows God's son. Who will be falsely accused, his words twisted and used against him to condemn him for daring to question the system of the religious elite, even as Job here does. You see what this drama is leading us to. You see how if we follow this theme of God's servant being falsely accused of sin he did not commit, if we we trace it all the way through, it will take us to Joseph, it will take us to David in Psalm 109, it will take us to the prophets, and it will take us to Christ, who even as he's falsely accused and condemned, the self-proclaimed righteous of verse 19 will see it and be glad and laugh at him, rejoicing as their enemy is cut down and consumed. Do you see the cruelty of Job's friends, who like Psalm 109 says of Christ's enemies, though he showed them love, have surrounded him with words of hate and spoken against him with a lying tongue, rewarding him evil for good and hatred for his love. And Eliphaz here anticipates the enemies of Christ who will do just that, mocking his sorry state, slandering his character, twisting his words. And lastly, promising prosperity based on pretense. That's so what we see in verses 21 to 30, where Eliphaz now begins to, to evangelize Job with his system and call him to repent, admit what Eliphaz says is true, and by so doing, to be at peace with God. So look at me now at, at Eliphaz's uh, call to repentance in verses 21 to 30, where first he calls him to agree with God in verse 21 and 22 and receive instruction. From his mouth. You see, if you're, you're reading the New King James, that uh, him in verse 21 or his in verse 22, those are, are referring to God. And so Eliphaz is saying, agree with God and receive instruction from his mouth, which of course is not bad advice. It's a very good thing to do. Only what Eliphaz means by agreeing with God, that's how we, we could translate verse uh, Twenty-one, when it says, acquaint yourself with him or, or agree with him, literally. When Eliphaz says agree with God, what he means is agree with me and everything that I've just said in the last 20 verses. And by receiving instruction from God's mouth, really Eliphaz means from his mouth. In the context of this chapter, God has not spoken. God hasn't spoken yet in the whole book. And so what Eliphaz is saying is, receive instruction from my mouth, and by doing so, you'll agree with God. Do you see the pride of Eliphaz in equating his words with divine words and suggesting that by agreeing with him, Job will be agreeing with God? This is the very definition of the pride and haughtiness that Zophar accused Job of back in chapter 20, verse 6. But this kind of religious certainty often accompanies grace-free philosophies like that of these men who will not be told that they're wrong but are so sure that they speak on God's behalf that they are therefore right to verbally abuse anyone who would question them, anyone like poor Job. Zelphaz is inviting him to agree with him, really what he's inviting him to do is to admit that verses five through nine are true, that his iniquity is without end and his wickedness is great, that he is the power-hungry monster of verse eight and that all of these snares around him in verse 10 and verse 11 are for that reason. He's calling him to admit that it's not because of his fear of God that God corrects him, verse 4, but is calling him to deny the possibility of righteous suffering and therefore deny the gospel of the one he foreshadows. Eliphaz is calling him to deny his theology of the cross and repent on pretense so that, verse 21, good will come to him. Once again, the goal... Is prosperity. And as the accuser, Eliphaz, has become the voice of the accuser from chapter 1, he, he anticipates Satan in Matthew 4, where he will try to get Christ to seize glory and seize prosperity and seize a kingdom by skipping the cross to seize the crown, by, deny, or by compromising his integrity for the sake of prosperity. That's what Satan will will try to get Christ to do in his temptations in Matthew 4. That's what Eliphaz is trying to get Job to do here. As he promises in verse 23, that if you return to the Almighty by feigning repentance, then you'll be built up. He is offering pretense as a way to prosperity. All you have to do is admit that up to this point, Job, you have loved gold more than God, that that Zophar and I are right. You're a power-hungry, wealth-obsessed, penny-pinching, 10th commandment-breaking sinner. All you have to do is admit that, and if you do, and instead make the Almighty your gold, verse 25, then look at all these promised blessings that will be yours. Verses 26 and 27, he names spiritual blessings. You'll be able to lift up your face to God. You'll you'll be able to make your prayer to him and he'll hear you. Which, of course, misunderstands that Job already is deeply right with God. Verse 28, he promises material blessings. You will declare a thing and it will be established for you. Light will shine on all your ways. Here, Eliphaz again betrays a tendency toward what we call the the prosperity gospel where being right with God means that you can name it and claim it and all you must do is follow this formula of pretending not to care about your money, verse 24, so that in the end, God will give you more money. Then in verses 29 and 30, he ironically promises that Job will become a source of blessing to others through intercessory prayer as he will save the humble and deliver one who is not innocent. Eliphaz says, yes, he'll be delivered by the purity of Job's hands. Eliphaz is saying, this is what will happen if you get right with God. And I say that this last promise is ironic because this is precisely what will happen in chapter 42. As this very righteous man to whom Eliphaz speaks will intercede for Eliphaz who will be singled out by name in Job 42.7 as God says directly to Eliphaz the Tamanite, my wrath burns against you and your two friends. So offer seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and he will pray for you and I will accept him and not deal with you according to your folly for not speaking of me what is right as my servant Job has. By singling out Eliphaz in chapter 42, God makes the point That that event that that we'll read of when we get to the end of the book and Job's intercession for them, that that event is the ironic fulfillment of what Eliphaz says here. That Eliphaz then is the guilty one, the one not innocent, who will be saved by the purity of Job's hands. Who is not the wicked man that Eliphaz says he is, but is in fact, is in fact blameless, which Job 22.3 is a pleasure to the Almighty. You see, Eliphaz not only got, got Job wrong, but he gets God wrong. That's what, Job, what God says in Job 42.7. In fact, he says it twice, verse 7 and verse 8. You have not spoken of me what is right because Eliphaz and his friends fail to understand, Job 22.4, that sometimes God does afflict his servants because of their godliness. Which means the reason you're not suffering as Job did may not be because you are more righteous, but less. Sometimes God does afflict his servants because of their godliness. And through their faithful suffering, he will silence the accuser. That's the gospel message of the book of Job that Eliphaz and his friends have completely missed. And so end up falsely accusing God's blameless servant of unthinkable sin that is 100% manufactured. You see, the shadow of Christ in the book of Job Do you see how what happens here is the beginning of a theme that that will lead to other messianic types like Joseph and David. It will lead to the prophets and it will lead us to the prophet who is the blessed one of Matthew 5.11 who is reviled and persecuted and has all kinds of evil things set against him for God's sake. Like the prophets before him among whom were Job here in Job 22 or David in Psalm 109 that Christ is the one who will fulfill that, that pattern, that theme, that it all comes to him, who then calls us likewise, as we heard in our call to worship from Matthew 5, to be willing to endure those same accusations, those same false accusations, and even rejoice when we do, for so they persecuted the prophets, and so they persecuted the prophet who went before us, the one to whom Job points. So that are being falsely accused, whether by the world who calls us homophobic and misogynistic and, and not in tune with the times or, or in the early church where they called them uh, cannibals and incestuous because they would eat the bread of Christ and the Lord's Supper, because they would have uh, love feast together around the Lord's table, greeting brother and sister with a holy kiss. And so the world looked on at the church and mocked them and falsely accuses, accused them so the church being falsely accused in the past, the church being falsely accused today, or, or even our being falsely accused by those within the church who, who may accuse you like Job of things that you have not done because of your insistence on, on a system of grace and they twist your words and they mock you and they slander. Christ says rejoice. For so they treated the prophets like Job who went before you and so they treated me. And so your bearing under false accusation is a way in which you share in my suffering, Christ And by doing so faithfully, is a way in which you silence the accuser and crush him under your feet. But as you look at Job 22, I want you to see the shadow of the false accusations that will be hurled against the Messiah, but then I want you to see the way of the cross that he calls all of us to follow and rejoice. For Job 22.3, it is a pleasure to the Almighty when we remain faithful, even then. Amen.
1: Father in heaven,
0: we... read in the book of Acts where the apostles are falsely accused and mistreated. Then it tells us that they rejoice to be counted worthy to suffer shame for Christ's name. Or we read in the Beatitudes where Christ tells us to rejoice and be glad for great is our reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets and so they persecuted him. And we admit, Lord, that it's difficult to rejoice when slandered. And so we pray that you would help us to see through the eyes of what we have just read and heard in the book of Job, how you do find pleasure in the faithfulness of your people through suffering, even through slander. As we'll see in the end of the book, that you will, in fact, crush the serpent Leviathan under your feet through it. Help us to believe that in Jesus' name.